This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. A fervent body. Uh, The vision for 2018. So this is sort of a fireside chat. I don't know if I'll turn into preaching mode in this. Of course, I have said that before and then ended up preaching harder than uh, I'd ever preached before, so I have to be watchful. But this is mainly just uh, wanting to share where I'm at as we're closing this year and where we're at uh, closing this year and where I would expect us to be headed this next year. So I've talked to the pastoral team about this because I had, I don't know what it was, five, six messages that I gave this fall, and then we sort of went into uh, Christmas season. I don't know what else to call it, because that's probably what we would recognize it as, which is a great opportunity to lose focus. And it's not because it's a bad season, it's just a noisy season. And there's a lot of exceptions. There's a lot of uh, variables that get thrown into our lives, and it's very easy to get distracted from what we were doing. And so we can get a clear assignment. Uh, I, I see this with my young kids all the time. It's like, I, I need you to go hang up your coat and put your shoes on the shelf. And then something happens that I think we called it the, the shimmer of metallic substance in the bush or the squirrel in the tree, you know, depending on uh, what attracts you. And once that shimmer hits, you have a tendency to lose the original task at hand. And so many of us have been given an assignment, and I think if we were reminded of that assignment, we'd say, yeah, it was clear. I did know what I was supposed to be doing. I did actually say to God, yeah, that's what I'm going to go after. And yet something comes in and distracts us from a very clear focus. And we could blame it on the shimmering substance in the bush, or we could blame it on the squirrel uh, in the tree, or we could take responsibility for being very distractible humans. We are, we have a flaw inside of us, and that is where we should be of singular devotion. We have a tendency to be of devotion to many things, and that which we are supposed to put as the priority usually gets stuck in the back seat very easily. For all of us in here, it's not a statement of saying that's where we're at. It's saying we're vulnerable to that. And what I would mean by a fervent body is a body not just this individual body known as Eric Ludi, but this body of Christ, your individual body, but also us as a whole, that we would be fervent. Now, it probably would help if I defined that word because some of you know what it means. Some of you are just staring blankly back at me. Fervent, ardent. I don't know if that helps. Uh, ardent sounds... Ardor is like fierce love. So ardent fiercely pursuing something because it is so important, fervent, very warm. So this is the idea of heat. It's, you could have the word fervent and it could mean hot with anger. That could be an actual description. I didn't put that down in the definition list because I thought it could mislead you. 
but that actually could be, like a hot temper would be fervent. So this indicates a heat index in the soul. And we are commissioned to have a heat index in our soul that is like the evidence of fire within our being. I mean, the Holy Spirit is supposed to be living inside of us as Christians, as individuals, and as a body. And what that should create is a heat index, a level of affection. So ardent, very warm, earnest, excited, animated, glowing. So if you stuck a coal into the the fire, you would notice that it wouldn't just get hot, but it would prove that it has heat in it by doing what? By glowing. And so a glowing ember is showing that it is consumed with that fire. And so for us as a body, there should be an evidence in this natural realm that we are actually in the fire and the fire is in us. And it should be that we are fervent or that we are glowing. We are showing something that otherwise would not be present in a normal human. We are not meant to be normal humans. We are meant to be super normal humans. We are meant to be the body of Christ, which shows the realities of the kingdom of heaven in these bodies. That's just what it is. So fervent. The unabashed father. So we see this depth of affection revealed in and through the kingdom of heaven multiple times. I mean, this, I'm just going to give you a cursory overview, but you have the father. Jesus actually shares the story of what most of us know as the prodigal son. And you have the father in that story, which is indicative of his heart because he's the manifestation, the full revelation of the father, but it's also of our father in heaven. So what we see in this story is a picture of God's heart towards those that are astray. It's pretty amazing, really. So as many of you know the story, this this child that is raised, this son that is raised in the home, asks for his inheritance, goes out and squanders it. I mean, really blows it. For all practical purposes, most of us would just say, hey, uh, you know, you've blown it. There's no hope for you. However, God wants us to know that the heart that he has towards those who have blown it is actually fervent. It is very warm. And he desires, with a deep desire, that there would be a return of the prodigal unto himself. So if ever we go astray or we go away, God wants us to know, hey, I'm still fogging up the windows looking for you to come home. In other words, he's still fervent. And he arose, speaking of the father, when he sees the son approaching the house, he arose and came to his father. Oh, sorry. talking about the son arising and coming to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And in this culture that Jesus is even speaking to, it is undignified for a man to run. So what Jesus seems to say is, hey, God will throw all dignity to the wind, all social propriety to the wind. That's how fervent he is in his love. He will hang naked on a tree publicly exposed to show that love. That's fervent. And so what we see is that God is wanting to reveal to us the depths of his love at any point. You see, I can raise a standard in here, and there could be some conviction and some guilt. And that's not where the gospel leaves us. The gospel doesn't leave us just with the sense that we're wrong. It leaves us with the clear picture of his rightness. And the fact that he so fervently 
loves us, so affectionately loves us that he has gone to the greatest lengths so that if we would simply humble ourselves, acknowledge our sin, and come to him, that he heals us, that he restores us, that he forgives us. It's an amazing picture. And so as we share the gospel, it's very important. For instance, I could talk about the fact that you know I shared this most of this fall talking about the revival of the church, the recalibration of our souls. I've given very, very specific messages to say, let's get rid of diversions. Let's get that distraction out of our life and let's pursue this. Hey, guys, we have one life to live. Let's do this well. And probably every single one of us, including me, could stand before the bar of God's perfect justice and be found to have failed at some measure in our pursuit of the fullness of Jesus Christ in these past months. In other words, that isn't where we leave off. What we do is we say, if we have fallen short, if we find ourselves distracted, hanging out in the bush looking at the metallic substance, that we say, Lord, you're right. And we return home. We return to that center point. We return to the place where we know we ought to be. And this is how we are greeted every time. That doesn't go away. It doesn't grow old. It doesn't fade. The love and the fervent pursuit of our God towards us is a constant. He is the I am, and this is his behavior towards his children. As Paul would say, you know, so should we just hang out with the pigs? This isn't a direct quote of Paul, by the way. And what would Paul say? God forbid. In other words, just because God's grace is constant and God's love is always fervent like this doesn't mean we take advantage of it. In other words, live in the house. Stay in the house. The point is, though, if you ever wander from the house, if you ever find yourself with a little pig slop on your cheeks, return home. Return home to the place of his presence, to the place of constancy with him. Abide with him. The affectionate women. Then you see the response, not just of God to us, but of the bride to that groom, Jesus And so, incredible picture, as far as I'm concerned, is as they went to tell his disciples, so this is, uh, the the women have recognized that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. This picture of affection, when they see their risen Lord, how do they respond? They fall to his feet And cling to him. I mean, you see Mary of Bethany literally crying, washing his feet with her tears. You see her breaking open her spikenard. These are the Marys. This is the picture of the bride. Mary means rebellious. The rebellious that have seen the risen Lord, that have been cleansed and washed. What do they do? They pour out everything and they show affection to their king. He doesn't just show affection to us. We show affection to him. Fervent. This is the fervent body. It is the warmed body, the body that glows with that affection, that warmth of love. Him to us, us to him. The fervent apostle. I could pick a lot of different stories here out of Christian history, but uh, possibly my favorite, if you've hung around me, is the story of Peter and just the trail of Peter. And this is after the Bible is concluded. You see it in Fox's Book of Martyrs. You see it in the book Martyr's Mirror that Peter oftentimes would cry, and uh, the disciples would notice, that, or the, just the people of the saints of God would notice that when he would hear a cock crow, he would break down and cry. And that made sense to him, but other times he would just sob. Huge fisherman, I guess. Even in his description in Christian history, just a massive man. 
And so one of the saints comes up to him and says, Peter, why do you cry? And he says, Desiderio Domini, because I dearly long to be with my Lord. And when he was brought to his place of execution, he was going to be crucified. Is the form of mocking him for what he had represented. He preached the cross of Christ. And at his very end, he pleaded, lest he diminish the glory of the cross of Christ by being likewise crucified, he actually asked for a more painful death and he was crucified upside down. It's a fact. Peter chose a more painful death that he would honor the cross of Christ. That's uh, fervent. That is something that is hard for us to even know how to respond to, that someone would choose greater difficulty to express love. I don't want to diminish the cross. That is everything to me. Crucify me in a more painful way. Whoa, fervent. Do we have that? So what I would say is this is my desire. If I'm going to describe where we've been this fall and where I see us headed It's that I do not want to stop until we begin to, well, until we get to heaven. The word stop doesn't really go into the Christian vocabulary. But I don't want us to pitch a tent where we're at now. In fact, I have such a deep longing. It's not even a complaint about where we're at as a body. I love where I I see us at. I see, because I talk with so many of you, I see the deep desire you have for greater depths of Jesus Christ. I don't think we're lacking the desire. I think we need to see it increase, just like a fire. It's like I could come to your house, you could come to mine, and we see a little fire in the fireplace. However, it's like that fire could be so much more fervent. It could glow even greater. And so what do we need? We need kindling. We need to bring in some more logs and stick it on there and poke at it a little and blow on it. It's not that there isn't a fire in our hearth. It's that I believe God wants it to burn in such a way that the world around us catches it. I believe right now that the sort of fire that we are toting around is the fire that strengthens our lives but doesn't necessarily catch a hold of a dying generation. And I believe God wants to stir those embers. He wants to blow upon them in a greater measure. This fall, I referred to that with the term revival, which... Caused a few of you to trip over that because to you, there's a modern rendition of revival out there that isn't very healthy. It's weird and strange and bizarre. And that's actually what it would mean is look up the modern definition of revival. It probably says strange, weird, and bizarre behavior. And that isn't what I mean by it. I mean a restoration unto fullness. Fullness of fervency, glowing white hot. We are in the fire, the fire is in us. What's the result? Well, we burn down the house. In other words, the world catches a flame. That's what it means. So Leslie's in my life verse. That's a strange one. I don't know if Leslie would say this is our life verse or our marriage calling verse. I don't know what to call it. I called it our life verse. We actually have a lot of verses that are very, very significant to us. And I'm going to give you a little of the context to it because the context is really strange. Like, why? You remember the name of my marriage? I gave that a few weeks ago. It's called Barracks 28. It's like a barracks. That's our marriage. And yet it's beautiful. And our life verse is going to seem a little strange, too. It's like, whoa, uh, the church at Sardis? Uh, You're going to hang out there and get your life verse? Revelation 3 And to the angel of the church in Sardis, right. These things says, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. 
that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Well, uh, how many of you want to hang that up on your refrigerator? You see, the part of this that impacts us isn't the fact that we have to be the church at Sardis. It's that we are living in the age and generation in which Sardis behavior is very common, and we are deliberately, specifically commissioned by God. Though we live in a time when the church appears to be alive but is dead, and when that which is supposed to be functional and demonstrating the kingdom of heaven on this earth is no longer showing it. So here's the key. And strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. There's our commission right there. You know, it's interesting because you read God's smuggler with Brother Andrew, and this was his life verse too. And so Leslie and I have a deep bond with that book. That the life of Brother Andrew I can deeply resonate with, even though his commission was to go behind the Iron Curtain and to reach the church that was weakened because of communism. And he risked his life day in and day out to strengthen that church, to blow upon its embers, to see that which was dying strengthened and come to a roaring flame again. Well, you just got the summation of what Leslie and I feel we're here on earth for. And you just happen to be our home church. So where are we headed? We want to blow. In other words, it doesn't mean the church behind the Iron Curtain was dead. It just means it was dying. It was weakened because of communism. Communism's entire purpose was to snuff out the church. It's like we can talk about it as a governmental political maneuver. It's spiritual. Everything about that maneuver governmentally was intended to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. There are two kingdoms. A kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. And the kingdom of darkness is conspiring not to just build political kingdoms, but to snuff out the kingdom of light. And that's the same thing that is taking place in our country right now. We may not see it, that this is a spiritual battle. And the entire aim of the devil is to snuff out the light of the church of Jesus Christ in this generation. And we are weakening day in and day out. The church is dying. We've lost the centrality of the word of God. People in the church no longer know the text of scripture and therefore they're becoming unfamiliar with the one it reveals in Jesus Christ. And when you lose the person of Jesus Christ, now suddenly you diminish the work on the cross and you no longer recognize that all three of those are divine. That text was given by God to reveal the man of God who did God's work on that cross. That is God saving us. And when you lose that, what does a resurrected Christ mean? In other words, you've lost the whole thing. No longer do you have the power, you lose the fire, and pretty soon that fire goes out. Communism knew one thing, and that is if you can silence the church in one generation, the next generation is dead. So in China, the house church movement, the entire goal was a self, uh, three-self church. It's what's cu- currently taking place. And they know that you, they offer, for instance, in China, you actually can have a Bible and you can go to church. Sounds really strange uh, for China. In China? Yeah, you can. However, you're not allowed to share the gospel. You know that you're not allowed to train your kids in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the scriptures? You cannot convert your children to Christianity. Well, how are you going to handle that? Could you imagine? Someone tells us in this church that we cannot communicate to our kids about Christianity. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to be the outlawed Christians. We're going to end up in prison too. Because there's no way. 
you're taking that away from me. Because Christianity demands action. You can't keep your mouth shut. You have to share it. If you really are a roaring fire and you're glowing, guess what? You're going to cause problems in a communist country. You can't help it because you can't hide your light under a bushel. Now, you can be smart about it and you can go underground. However, it's going to make things difficult. True Christianity creates ripples. I remember uh, Oswald Chambers. I, I was struggling when I was first becoming a strong, passionate Christian, fervent, that as long as I maintained sort of a nominal category or a cool status, that it didn't really affect people or infect people, and people liked me. But the moment I became fervent, it was like a rock dropping into a lake. What happens? It affects all the water around it. And I didn't want to affect all the water around it. I just wanted to give Jesus my life. I didn't want to make it inconvenient for everyone I knew. All my family members, everyone now had to handle the stuff that came because Eric was going weird. And I didn't want it to affect everyone, but I remember Oswald Chambers making it very clear. He said, you may, out of your own human love, desire to spare those around you from experiencing the effects of your fire. However... True love is always going to create a ripple. It can't help it. That was very important for me to recognize. I'm going to create a ripple. If I truly am on fire for Jesus Christ, I am, whether I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable on purpose, not like I want to make them miserable, but I do. I want everyone around me to encounter the discomfort of soul that awakens in them the realities of their lostness so that they too would cry out for a Savior and find the answer in the person of Jesus Christ. Strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. The burden for more. So see if I can bring you into my struggle this fall. I have been a strong believer since February 2nd of 1990. And so that... It's actually quite a long time now. I mean, for some of you, you're like, oh, you're just a little one. Uh, but, you know, we're talking, uh, what will this be? 20, 27 years? In February 2nd of this next year, is it 28? Okay, 28 years. I'm coming up on 28 years. That's cool. Uh, 28, good number. Jim Elliott died at the age of 28. Uh, David Brainerd died at the age of 28. Uh-oh. Uh, I, I might not make it through this next year, guys, but uh, this is a big year for me. 28 years of fervent Christianity. What I've focused on in those 28 years is how to keep this fire stoked. The personal fire of Eric Ludi. And what have I learned? Well, I've learned that it goes out very easily and that it takes proactive effort and that if I am passive at all, even for one day of my life, I can lose something very precious in my existence. So I have to set a garrison at guard over the watchfulness of every thought I have, every emotion I feel, I cannot live on accident. I have to live on purpose. So Eric has learned this, and I teach it. I disciple people all the time. However, what is happening in me this fall is God is wanting to take this fight that I have inside of me and bring it here to the local body. That I can't just sit by and say, well, you can have whatever, well, I, I would never tell you this, but 
where I'm passive with what's going on inside of your soul, inside of your mind, and that if you want to ignore my message, hey, at least I gave it. Instead, to treat the body as if it is my body and to begin to fight and rally and to say, we cannot accept that. That's the way I treat my body. If you knew how hard I was on my body, you'd recognize I am so easy on you guys. I literally shout inside of my life. I preach inside of my life. I get out of bed on purpose, stick my feet on the floor. Now I have little Jackie Hudson's dog that sleeps right at the base, right where my feet come out. So I have to remember that too in the morning. I get out and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I put my feet on the floor and I'm already rehearsing the truth of the gospel. I do not wake up on accident. I wake up on purpose. I am here with a job to do. I know that. I have spent years of my life saying, I am on purpose. However, I do not know how to do this. How do I live with you on purpose? How do I live where we are all sticking our feet on the floor every day and saying, I am in Christ. And in Christ, my old man does not rule this body. But Jesus, the Spirit of God, rules this body. God, whatever you want to do with this day, it belongs to you. I consecrate it to you even as I take my first breaths and think my first conscious thoughts this morning. My life belongs to you. So, and I organize my day around this. So my pursuit of God in the scriptures, my pursuit of God in prayer, this is what I do. However, I'm also very watchful to know that every one of us has different lives. And I never want to create a frame or a structure and force you into it, because you're not me. I, I was talking with uh, Kel McElroy this morning of the importance of, like when I teach public speaking, one of the first things I'll say is, hey guys, I'm going to teach you public speaking, but I want you to know up front, do not try and speak like I do. If you try and speak like I do, it's going to be awkward and weird for us all. In other words, you are built uniquely to express the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do is give you tools to do that. And the same is true with church. I do not train you to be like me. I do not even try and conform you doctrinally to be precisely like me. I actually want you to have the same fire. But I do not know how exactly to do that. So what you've seen me go through this fall is that I have been trying to not give up. Have you guys noticed that at times? I even had the pastors come up and surround me and pray for me. They noticed. They noticed that I am on the verge of just saying, hey, guys, look, I'll just go back to the old model. I'm not going to push you anymore to keep going after this. It's like, hey, we're, we're, we don't, I, don't, I don't like the word revival, or I don't need this, or various things. I, and I could easily just say, hey, look, you know, we were fine before I started pressing on this, and we're a healthy body in a general sense. I, I'm just trying the best way I know, to say, okay, instead of just saying, I'm going to tend to my own life, I want to tend to what we're going through. We're all going to go through it in a unique way. Your diversions are different than mine. So if I prescribe that you need to stay away from, you fill in the blank, what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a legalism in your soul. I'm going to imply a law to your soul that the Spirit of God didn't give you. I gave it to you. And True Christianity doesn't function that way. I need to give you the tools and I need to invite you into the life of consecration so that you come before the Spirit of God and say, God, 
Whatever you want to do with this body, you do. I'm not the one that tells you to do what to do with your body. He does, according to his word. Now, we're all, we all have the same guidebook, but he's going to use us as individuals. I am a different part of the body than you are, so if I try and make you this part of the body, it's just going to be awkward. If we have a whole bunch of no noses running around, I don't know that I'm the nose, but if we were all just a whole bunch of noses, we'd be a funny-looking body. And so as a result, I am learning, probably right along with you, you're learning how to put up with Eric, I'm learning how to not give up in my pursuit of a body being on fire. And that's actually the labor I'm going through. It might be different than what you're engaged with, but when I speak, instead of you saying, he's still on that topic? Well, yeah, you know why I'm here on earth? It's to strengthen that which remains before it dies. I do not want us to have an appearance of being alive and be dead. I have such a repulsion to that version of Christianity. I am built to tackle Sardis. That's what I'm wired for. And so as a result, if I'm in my own church, I cannot accept anything that would appear to be alive but is covering up the fact that it's really dying. I do not want to just hear the right statements from you and say, hallelujah, I don't want to just see you raise your arms if it's not authentic worship. I want it to be genuinely flowing from the depths of your being. I want you to walk in the purity that is yours. If you're feeling the conviction of sin, I want to introduce you afresh to the shed blood of Jesus and to the Father that sprints. I want you to live in that place of peace. If you're not sleeping well at night because of the guilt and the condemnation, that isn't acceptable when there's freedom when there is healing, and when there's restoration available to you. I don't want you to be under the radar, and it's very easy for you to fall under the radar. It's very easy because I fill my life very full, and it's hard for me to always consider when I'm still, I mean, it's a full-time job maintaining the spiritual life of Eric Ludi. It's a full-time job maintaining and cultivating a world-class marriage. It's a full-time job cultivating and implanting in my six kids the life of Jesus. Right? Full-time. I'm already maxed out, guys. All right, you tend to yourselves. It's that much harder when I run a college and I have all sorts. I mean, I have all sorts of job descriptions, by the way. I'm not going to bore you with all that. I have a full life. For me to take the weight spiritually of what is taking place in here and say, I own it. And I refuse to sit by idly and twiddle my thumbs. I want to fight for you guys and not just say that I'm willing to fight. I want to fight. However, it's easier said than done. How many of you have ever had a noble idea, but it never transformed into living reality? That's what my fall has been. So Eric, how are you doing with your whole pursuit of the body of Christ? Uh... I still feel it, but I still want to give up. Isn't that an interesting statement? So which side's going to win? Well, if I was giving up, do you think I'd be giving this message? In other words, I'm not giving up. I just happen to be leaving town, which is hard. I had Christmas, and now I'm leaving town. We have our annual family getaway uh, in January. So next week, the week after, I'm not here. The reason I'm giving this is because I want you to know my intentionality. I want you to recognize that I have not moved from my position, though I have a lot of reasons. For instance, Mary and Martha 
and Lazarus were all told something very specific. And they had a very specific word from Jesus. This sickness will not end in death. I would say the exact same thing for us. I hear the sound of an abundance of rain. God wants to do something in and through this little diddly squat body here in Windsor that is beyond anything any of us can think or imagine. However, though I have heard the word, I feel like Jesus left town. And I'm like, hey, Jesus, where are you? I sort of need your help for this. I can't raise him from the dead. And days pass. And the question to my soul is, did you hear the abundance of rain or not? Did you hear it, Eric? Well, I did, but I mean, how do you explain this? Because fervency is, is a hard thing to know how to cultivate in a corporate sense, because I can't do it any more than I could raise Lazarus from the dead. I can't do it, but I can stand firm when any of you ask me and say, so what about this whole like sickness not ending in death thing? Or what about this whole like reviving of the body thing? I still believe his word. I believe that God wants to do something in our midst that is going to restore fruitfulness to the body of Christ just as Israel for three and a half years was without rain and as a result the earth became dead and the green left. The church of Jesus Christ today is in a similar condition. We are under the rule of Ahab and Jezebel in many regards. We've submitted to the natural powers of this earth and we have kowtowed. We do not want to stick our necks out and stand against the cultural regime. We do not want to draw attention to ourselves. Hey, leave us alone. We want to go into our bomb shelter and hide in the fetal position. And I'm here to tell you, I cannot allow us to do that. I cannot allow my own soul to go into hiding, nor can I let us play it safe. I believe God wants to do something in this generation, and for whatever reason, he desires to use us. I'm not exactly sure why he would want to use us, but he does. Though we be very imperfect, I think he senses in our midst a humility. We've been willing as a body to remain small. I think he's recognized a true genuine fervor, a desire and a heart of worship here. I think he's discovered that we are willing to guard his word even at the expense of mockery. Though we be small, I do not believe we are insignificant. But I do believe that if he's going to use us, he needs to prepare us. And if he's going to prepare us, it's just like, how is wheat prepared to be used for bread? It has to be threshed. It has to go through the wind and fire of the threshing floor. That's actually what the Holy Spirit was given us to accomplish, to prepare us to be made bread, to, be, to prepare us to do the work of the kingdom of heaven as the body of Christ, which, by the way, he was the bread from heaven, and we are that same body, meant to be given up that others may partake of that which is eternal.
So there's been a debate, uh, should I call it revival? And I agree. I actually agree that the word, unfortunately, has a bit of tainting and barnacles to it that make it hard and can trip people. And I really don't want to trip people. I spent years of my life, for the first 12 years of our marriage, dealing with the issues of sexuality in our culture. And I could have used words like prudence and chastity. They're good biblical words, by the way. And yet I chose not to. Why? Because my audience tripped (laughs) over those words. It's like, no offense, Eric. I'm sure you're a nice guy, but I don't want to be chased. And I mean, do you blame someone for not wanting to be chased? If they know what it means, then they're fine with it. But it takes a long time. They've walked out before I can even explain what it means. And so as a result, we chose terminology that would actually introduce the, the depths of God's truth to them without causing them to trip over a word. A word is not the issue. It's a translation. I mean, and even in the Bible, you know what the word revival isn't even in it? So for me to fight over that word is about as ridiculous as you could get. It does have the word revive. Okay, so that, that is in there. But the word to me is a historical word that demonstrates something throughout history, and I don't want to lose that. What revival means to me is very, very significant. So I don't want to lose that, but I also don't want to trip us as a body. So we use the word, uh, what was, recalibration, and which means to be brought back into the exact state as we ought to be. So if you're recalibrating an instrument, you're fine-tuning it so that it is effectual, so that it is doing and accomplishing exactly what it should. If we had a machine here that was producing some kind of thingamajig or uh, gizmo, then if the gizmo was coming out a little cattywampus on the other end, it doesn't mean it's not coming out. It doesn't mean it's not bearing fruit. It's just that it's not the fruit that as God intended. What would you do? You'd recalibrate the machine. You'd cause it to function better so that what's coming out the other side is exactly what's supposed to come out the other side. That's what I feel we need. If we're a healthy body, we're doubling, tripling, quadrupling in size in a very short period of time because we're bearing fruit. Fruits for us isn't just love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Did I give more than nine there? That just seemed like I said a couple twice. It's more than just the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit just like a, a husband and a wife produce. It's children. And for us, if we truly are glowing, we're going to change people's lives around us. And are we set up as a church to disciple? to impart the life that we have so that others that don't even know Christ right now will become glowing saints. That's the passion that I have, that we bear the fruit of the Spirit and that we glow with God's glory, but that we also impart that life unto others and that we multiply in our effect. I'm not even saying they have to come to church here. I'm just saying that there should be an effect upon our life and upon others. What is a revival or a recalibration in the church of Jesus Christ? When the body of Christ is brought again to its proper intensity for obedience to and purity in Jesus Christ. Intensity for, this is worthy of all my energy, all my hours, all my days, all my talents, all my resources, all my time, all my life. You see, when we start to veer off of the reservation, the clear reservation of Scripture, what we do is our intensity for, see, right now, if I said, are you passionate about Jesus? Amen, brother. Of course I am. However, we and only we know if we've lost heat. This is a heat index. This is worthy of all my energy. Do you agree with that? 
See, I don't want just an intellectual agreement. I want it to spring out of the intellect into the action. Ugh. This is worthy. All of my energy, all of my hours, all of my days, all of my talents, all of my resources, all of my time, all of my life. This is thinking like a Christian. This is recalibration. We're being brought and the instrument is being fine-tuned to say, well, this is actually what it's supposed to be, though. So if you're not this way, what should you do? You should humble yourself and say, hey, God, I think I got a little cattywampus here. Could you, could you restore me unto that intensity for? Obedience to. Whatever he asks me to make right, I will. Whatever he asks me to confess, I will. Whatever he says needs to go, it will. Whatever he says needs to be added, it will. Whoever he asks me to share the gospel with, I will. And wherever he asks me to go, no matter the suffering and the difficulties that may attend to the action, I will go. Now, only you can actually define if that is where your machinery or your body is currently at right now. So when I say a revival or a recalibration... What I'm saying is we raise the standard as God does in Scripture. And we say, here's what he says. And then we say, yep, that's not exactly where I'm at. Now, the reason many of us struggle with things like this, like, that's impossible. You can't live that way. And therein lies the problem. I agree that you and I can't live that way. But I do know someone who can. His name is Jesus Christ. He didn't just live that way, but now he's given us himself as the Holy Spirit, to live inside of this body so that we can do what we couldn't do in our own strength. That is Christianity, and that's the church of Jesus Christ. It's called the body of Christ. So that we actually do live this instead of just esteem it on paper and then contradict it in our life. Having solid doctrine that agrees with this makes no difference in the world. But actually having the power of the Holy Spirit to do it is what changes the world. Purity in. Search me, O Lord, and know my thoughts. If there be any wickedness in me, expose it. If there be any motive in my soul that is ulterior to your agenda in my life, bring it to the surface that I may get rid of it. If there be any habit that is undermining my singular devotion to you, eradicate it. Take me to the floor of wind and fire and purify me. Purge me. You see, what wheat would go through is it would be threshed, which threshing is usually not that comfortable. Oftentimes, it was a form of beating, okay? I'm not saying you need to go through a form of beating, but you need to have the tribular. That's where the word tribulation comes from. Tribulars actually came against that crop and removed the outer husk, or for wheat, it's chaff. You see, chaff is not harmful in and of itself. It's just it's not supposed to remain. You have a chaff around your life, just as I do. And yet tribulation works something in our life to remove that. And so when we allow God to notch up that intensity for and that obedience to, you know what happens? We begin to go through some challenges in life. You start walking up to people and sharing Jesus with them, and you're going to find that you have new challenges in your life that you didn't have before. And then what's funny is, because we could say, well, what if they give their life to Jesus? Then we just have rejoicing. No, now you have challenges because now you need to disciple that young soul. And so now you're more dependent than you ever have been. Your prayer life has to increase to match the challenge. It's called tribulation. The chaff is being removed because you're going to begin to notice a selfishness inside of you. It's the same selfishness 
that all of us recognize when we first get married. We're radical Christians on the mission field. This is, this is me, this is Eric Ludi, Radical missionary on the mission field, given Jesus, and then I get married. And it's just like, okay, I'm just gonna take that same selflessness and apply it to marriage. Well, it sounds good on paper, but you get married and suddenly you're realizing, it's like, wow, it like draws up selfishness to the surface. It exposes what's wrong with me. How about kids? You have a little baby, and I tell you what, it's a weird thing. They're so cute, but they expose your selfishness. It's like, yeah, could you, uh, crying baby in the middle of the night, yeah, could you, could you, uh, why, why don't you, you're, just, you're the mother and you're just really good with, the, they really settle down when you're holding them. See, the selfishness rises to the soul. I remember one of the biggest steps I ever took in my life. Uh, one of my children, uh, <clears throat> one of the older ones, uh, had, uh, what was it, what's it called, uh, acid reflux. And the only way to get him to go back to sleep was to bounce on a ball. That's, I mean, we tried everything. When you're a parent, you try everything. I mean, to get that child to sleep, you will invent new ways. And so we're like bouncing on this ball uh, every time. And it was work because you're, you're asleep, right? You were asleep. Baby awake, screaming, because it's painful, acid reflux. And the only way was to bounce on a ball. And so you're like falling asleep as you're doing this. Like, could you just go to sleep? Could you, could you go, go to sleep, go to sleep? And uh, so then add to that uh, some digestive issues that crept up where uh, we were filling up a diaper oh, five or six times a night. Okay, this was like some serious clean out, right? So we have the acid reflux and we have the diaper issues. And Leslie was fading. She was really struggling in this stretch. I don't remember what it was. It was a physical issue. And I made one of the riskiest maneuvers of my life. And I said, you sleep in the other room tonight. I'll take this. I tell you what, I've never felt so selfish in my life. I know what you're all thinking I was all noble. The whole while, I'm thinking, I should not do that. (laughs) What is that going to cost you, Eric? I mean, I wanted to renege on it. I wanted to draw her in in the middle of the night because it was the worst night that had ever existed. It was the worst parenting night possible. I think it was around 12 episodes of something that night. I think I had a stack of dirty diapers in the morning that were just sitting there. <laughs> I didn't even throw them away. I was just like, get back into bed. And I recognized in and through that night how selfish this guy was. The whole while I'm trying to do something servant hearted, and the whole while I'm recognizing I got some serious chaff. You see, I don't care how well developed you are in your spiritual life. I can guarantee you there's more sanctification to come. My question to you is, are you willing to boldly go after that and to see God purify you, or are you wanting to justify yourself and say, hey, I've gone far enough. Eric, don't give me any messages about recalibration. I'm fine. I'm here to tell you that no matter how many years I've been a Christian, I keep finding that there's more recalibration that can go in my life, more refinement so that the fruit coming out of my life more resembles Jesus. The body of Christ, the standard of the Lord. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. So Isaiah 59, projecting and prophesying about the standard of the Lord, that which will resist and literally hit the enemy in the teeth and drive him back, was prophesied. We know him as Jesus Christ. 
He is the standard of the Lord, but I'm going to be more specific. He, it was the body of Christ that literally humbly hung upon a cross and in so doing crushed the head of the serpent. It was the body of Christ that crushed that head. And then you know how shocking it is when Paul says, do you not know that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and that you are in fact a temple, the house of God? You are the body of Christ. You see, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord does something very specific. And the Spirit of the Lord, it's not just past tense. The Spirit of the Lord, oh, he did things. Oh, he does things. He raises up a standard. He raises up an instrument to push back darkness. What is that instrument? It's known as the body of Christ. Welcome to your assignments. The Spirit of God sees the enemy coming in like a flood in our generation. I don't know what your take is on what's taking place in just our culture here in America, but I would say coming in like a flood is a fairly good description for it. So I'm going to tell you that God has always been in the business of raising up a standard. That standard is still Jesus Christ. But we are the ones that uphold it. In and through our intensity for our obedience to and our purity in. When we respond and we allow him to calibrate us, what happens is we become the resistance agent in this world. We become the body of Christ. As the body of Christ ought to be, and it pushes back darkness. Operation Wologo. You guys remember that message? We were in Isaiah 6. And there's, even the woe is misspelled here, by the way, for those of you that are grammaticians. I, I recognize that, but it looks so much better when it just says it that way. Woe is spelled W-O-E. But Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. He sees the Lord. And in the book of John, we actually recognize that Isaiah saw Jesus, which means in Isaiah 6, Isaiah is seeing Jesus Christ on his throne, high and lifted up. His train fills the entire house, which is meant to be a picture of that body. We are that temple. And the train of the glory of God, the sufficiency of God, fills the entirety of it. And when Isaiah sees it, what does he recognize? Whoa, I am a man of unclean lips. You see, when we see the highness of God, when we see the way that this machinery, this life is supposed to work, what do we recognize? I got problems. I'm not producing the fruit I'm supposed to produce. I mean, I could give you all sorts of messages today. I could speak straight out of the word of God, and what it's going to create for us is a woe. It's a serious woe. And the woe is not bad unless you stop there. If you stop at the woe and just camp on the woe and say, oh, woe, that's too bad. Well, then you die in your sin. You see, we can see the highness of God. We can see what he's supposed to be. He's supposed to consume the temple. He's supposed to be the whole thing, the center of it. And yet what we realize is, no, we've neglected him. We have not given him center position. We have allowed other things to creep onto that throne and to be that which is high and lifted up in our life. It creates a woe. And the low was the seraphim coming and touching Isaiah's lips with a burning coal and purifying him. You see, you see the highness of Jesus. And then what he does is he sends his message, the gospel, and it purges us from all sin. And it actually cleanses us, though we are sinners. That one has saved us. So the woe, the woe leads to the low. And you know what the low leads to? The go. 
They're conferring. The Godhead is conferring amongst themselves. We need someone to go. We need someone to go in and share. And Isaiah raises his hand. The one who has seen the vision, the woe, saw his sin, but then was cleansed. What does he say? Send me. Here am I. Send me. This is what we need. For those of you in here that have not seen the highness of Jesus Christ, his preeminence, the authority, he's supposed to consume our life. He's supposed to be the one thing that we're about. There's a lot of things in this earth to distract us. Loads of them. The devil invents them daily. But there's one thing that has always been there that is meant to have its train fill our temple. And we're supposed to behold him seated on that high throne. And when you do, it creates a domino effect which leads to you saying, take me, all of me, use me, whatever you desire, you're deserving, you have cleansed me, you have washed me a sinner. Though I am unworthy, you are worthy. Take what you purchased on the cross. The woe leads to the low, which leads to the go. And now the church is functioning as it ought to function. This is the picture. So whether we call it revival, we call it recalibration, or we call it wo-lo-go, we need this. The consecrated ear. So in the Old Testament, we have the preparation of the priests for the office. And what are they supposed to be doing? They're going to be working in the temple of God. And so as a result, God gives a very specific prescription. Then shalt thou kill the ram and take of his blood. This is a symbol of Jesus, the Messiah in the Old Testament. And put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and upon the tip of the right ear of his sons and upon the thumb of their right hand and upon the great toe of their right foot and sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about. So to be prepared to actually do the work of the temple. And Paul says, do you not know that this is now the temple? If you're going to do the work in this body, there's something that needs to take place first. You need to go to that cross and you need to partake of that sacrifice. There's blood that was given you. The life of Jesus needs to consume you. It needs to cover you. It needs to become clothing for you. But three very specific spots are mentioned. If a priest is going to be ready or consecrated, that means to be set apart for the purpose of serving Jehovah, his right ear needs to be smeared, his right thumb and his right big toe. His right ear. That he would hear the word of God. That he would agree. Obedience comes through hearing. You hear and you say, yes, Lord. As Christians, we say, yes, Lord, even before he asks. And that's what it means to have a consecrated ear, an ear smeared with blood. That means our answer to God, to his word, to his Holy Spirit is, yes, Lord, even before he asks. We don't debate God. We don't negotiate terms. When he asks, our answer is already given. I've already said yes. Thumb, control. You see, you need to be obedient and you need to give up the controls of your life. The right side of the body is a side of strength and control. And so we give up our right ear. We give up our right thumb. No longer is it our control or our grip. We let go. Our life now belongs to him. Right big toe. Well, that's what you lead with in this life. Where are you going? Well, it's no longer where you want to go. It's where he takes you. You see, you're following the lamb wherever he goes. You are consecrated. Therefore, you can now function in this body and be the temple. Where inside of you is the Lord Jesus high and lifted up. And the train fills the entire temple. This is what it means to be recalibrated. This is what we're being centered around. This is what it's all about. 
And he slew it, this is in Leviticus, and Moses took of the blood of it and put it upon the tip of Aaron's right ear and upon the thumb of his right hand and upon the great toe of his right foot. So he was obedient, and he did exactly what God asked him to do. Exodus 21, and many of you have heard this before. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go out free and pay nothing. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. So what we see in Scripture is two sorts that bear the strange ear markings. There is something about this ear that is marked both by a priest, having it smeared with blood, and then the bondservant who is set free but then returns out of love to his master, which is a picture of what Christianity is. You're set free at the cross, but then because of your love, you return to him and you submit your ear and say, pierce it, that it would be a constant symbol to me and to everyone around me. The glowing ember would show the world that I belong to someone. I am not my own. I was bought with a price. It's the bond servants and the priests of Jehovah, which by the way, in the New Testament, you are likened as Christians to both. The revelation So we have the book of Revelation. Who's it for? You know what it says? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants. Isn't that an interesting statement? Who's the revelation of Jesus Christ for? Well, it's for those with a pierced ear. It's for those that have submitted their ear to God to show them the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. John was a bondservant. It's for the love-bought bondservants of Jehovah, those who are a fiery flame of affection for their God. The churches in Revelation, listen to this. Ephesus, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Well, we all have ears. What kind of ear do you think he's talking about? He who has an ear, he who has a pierced ear, who has a smeared ear. You see, your ear has been set apart. Are you wanting to hear the revelation of Jesus? Are you wanting this truth? Allow God to smear your ear. Whatever he asks of you, your answer is yes. Smyrna, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Pergamos, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Thyatira, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Sardis, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Philadelphia, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. And to Laodicea, sorry, that one didn't get included. Says the same thing. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. The church that loses its warmth, that's Laodicea. The church that loses its fervency. Here it is. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginnings of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, he who has the smeared ear, he who has the pierced bondservant symbol, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's a whole bunch of people that have access to those words in this world right now. A whole bunch of Christians that could quote them. But it's the bondservants that hear it. 
Are we willing to say, I do not desire to go in the direction of Sardis. I do not desire to go in the direction of Laodicea. I desire to be recalibrated around the truth of Jesus Christ. I desire to live like a glowing ember. I can say it to myself, but I'm learning how to say it to us. That I would invite us into that same fervency, that same strength, that same preaching to your soul, that same desire to not be passive in this world, but to rise up and be strong. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So context, this is actually in James 5, which is strangely referring to healing. And so it talks about calling the elders of the church if anyone is sick and laying hands on them and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And then it goes into this story. It refers back to Elijah in the Old Testament, oddly. And it talks about the fact that, remember when Israel didn't have any rain? Remember when it was three and a half years and there was no rain? You know what caused that? Elijah prayed. That's what caused it. A man fervent and effectually prayed. And as a result, a nation was stirred to come up to Mount Carmel and say, God, what do we need to do? That's actually why they were at Mount Carmel. They didn't have any rain. And sometimes God can use the judgments of this earth to actually bring this earth to repentance. So that's the context here. It says, you remember that story in the Old Testament? Remember Elijah? Yeah, he looks like an impressive guy, but hey, there's no difference between you and Elijah. He prayed. And his prayers were fervent and therefore effectual. You see, if they're not warm, if there isn't heat, if we're not recalibrated, our prayers are not going to have the impact. But when we actually allow God to tune us afresh, to the way he intends us to be, our prayers hit the mark. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Here's a line I want you to catch. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. For me, this is almost like the second prayer, the second go around. I have seen God do amazing things in my life. If I were just to stand up here and give a testimonial time, I can tell you extraordinary stories of the faithfulness of God. I can. I have seen God faithful every single time I have ever leaned on him and trusted him. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Supremely happy is the man who makes God his refuge. I am that man. And I am supremely happy because of it. My God is faithful. However, though I have prayed in the past and seen God do something, there is something that I am yet to see happen, and that is the outpouring of rain upon the church of Jesus Christ. I have seen things personally, and those close to me have witnessed them, but have I seen God change the nation in which I live? No. And he prayed again. What sort of prayer is this? Is this like, hey, God, could you do something to fix things? This is fervent prayer. You see, there is a need in me, and I see it, for me to allow God to turn up the heat in my life higher. I find myself just wanting to throw a prayer God's way and say, God, I'm tired. Could you just do this? Why do you need a man to pray? Because to pray right now is a form of agony. It's, it's labor, and I just want you to do something. 
And what I see in that is a laxness in my soul. In other words, I, I can be fervent for my own spiritual life, for my marriage and my family, but am I willing to be fervent for you guys, for the community of Windsor, for Northern Colorado, for the Church of Jesus Christ, and for a lost and dying world? Oh, that's just tiring thinking about it. That's why I'm not going to think about it. I'm just going to say, yep, my answer's already yes, Lord. I have a smeared ear. I don't negotiate. I don't beg uh, to have an easy route. I know the devil's talking to me all day long, telling me, oh, Eric, you have so much on your plate. How in the world could you take that burden? I have a smeared ear, guys. And so my answer is, yes, Lord, burden me with your burden. Give me your heart and your affection for the body. Give me your heart and your affection for the body at large. Give me your heart and affection for the lost and dying. I do not want to rely on my own resource, on my own affections, on my own compassion. I need his. What if all of us begin to do the same thing? What if all of us don't negotiate terms and we don't say, well, God, that's just too heavy of a weight for me to carry right now? What if we don't even think about that and we just say, my answer is yes? You ever tried that? Instead of thinking it through, you just say, yes, my answer is yes. I have a smeared ear, don't you? If you don't, I think it's high time that you return to your master and submit your ear. This isn't a thing for negotiating terms. God purchased you with his blood. If you belong to Jesus, you're his. Give him what he deserves. He is looking for a vessel like Elijah who will stand in his generation and prove a fervency a glowing warmth of affection for his God that he refused to allow his generation to die without seeing the power of God. And guess what? God answered his prayer and fire came down from heaven. And the people of Israel, which was definitely not a healthy nation at the time, cried out the Lord or Jehovah. He is, in fact, God. They saw it. Do we have that same longing? It's okay if we acknowledge no because that's probably more close to accurate than anything. Maybe we have the longing for ourselves to see it, maybe for our children, but do we have the longing for a lost and dying world to see it? If you don't, it's okay. Just humble yourself before God and say, you need to fix this thing so that it works the way you intend it to work. That's what I mean by revival. Bringing us back to that fervent heat where we are ready to burn for Jesus Christ. And it did not rain in the land for three years and six months, and he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. That's a second praying. You're going to find this in your own life, too. Some of you are in that first season of your development where you're just trying to survive spiritually yourself. It's like, God, save me. Bring rain to this land. I have rain. But I need to care and allow God to care through me that the land around me has rain. Americans, we are trained to be selfish even in our Christianity. There is no such thing in the kingdom of heaven as selfishness. Jesus gave up his life for others. He could have just stayed seated. You know he's in the same seat that he was before he came? He could have just stayed there. Instead, he came and humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, so that he could take us with him to that place. You could choose to stay in your seat right now and just say, hey, I already got it good. 
Or you could humble yourself and become obedient as a servant, even unto death. Even the death of a cross, hanging naked before a generation, mocking you. So that you could save some. You see, you are the delivery vehicle that God has given. You're not the Savior. You're a little small S Savior, though. You are his hands and feet in this generation to carry his good news and his work on that cross so that others would be awakened. So, you can choose to just think about yourself or you can allow God to break you out of that shell, recalibrate your instrument to say, Eric, I built you, or put your name in there, I built you to give life to others. Don't just hog it for yourself. Let's be the church that keeps its warmth. We have something, guys, and it's very precious. As we go into this next year, I want you to know that my passion is to see us progress in this direction. If I was to be honest with you, I have no idea how to take us there. I would say our pastoral team would probably nod along and say, yeah, we don't know either. And yet, I don't think any of us were chosen as leaders because we have it all figured out. I think we were chosen as leaders because we're humble before the word of God and we desire God to give us wisdom and to lead us as we submit. And so I don't know how we're going to get there, but this is a taste. I want us to be a fervent body, a body filled with the fire of Jesus Christ that refuses to excuse itself from the clear commands of scripture, that refuses to justify, to rationalize why we live mediocre lives when we have been given all the power of God to fulfill the commission. The problem lies in us if we are falling short. And I desire to take full ownership in my life and even in this church. If we're falling short as a church, I'll even take responsibility for that. I want to be a better leader in 2018. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better father. I want to be a better Christian. And I believe that's what God is in the business of doing. If you have such a desire, I think we're in the right place. It's called the Church of Jesus Christ. God takes us onward. He doesn't take us backward. So let's pursue onward and upward together. Father, only you can do such a work. And without your Holy Spirit, we are left as orphans. But we have not been left as orphans. You have given us everything we need for life and godliness. You have given everything we need to live as you have commissioned us to live, to reveal you. Lord, we must understand how to grip it, how to take it and to apply it. Remove, purge the passivity from our ranks. Lord, may we be hot, may we be fervent, and may we not just be fervent for a day, for a week, for a month, not just for a season, but for a life. Teach us, Lord Jesus, how to stoke this flame, how to allow the Spirit of God to blow upon it. Remove the chaff, and may your holy fire and your holy wind blow us and purify us to make us bread. Lord Jesus, we love you and we submit to you in all of this. Praising your name. May 2018 be a year in which we see the power of God revealed in this earth in a greater measure. It's in the great name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. 
We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.